Hello, I'm Paul Daniels, Chairman of Involved Investors, and this is the first in a series of 15-minute, bite-sized podcasts, which I'm going to produce over the next few months. They'll be released weekly. I'm going to talk about the lessons I've learned, the mistakes I've made, and believe me, I've got the white hair to prove it, over 60 years in business. During that time, I've started, built, exited to secondary management dozens of new businesses, seven of them with a brilliant business partner, Marco Peters, a younger Dutch relative. We operated in totally diverse trade and industrial sectors. I've also been involved in dozens more where I've helped and invested in young entrepreneurs and helped them, I hope, to achieve their aims and dreams. Overall, I must have been involved in well over 100 startups and M&A deals. I was chairman of Angel Investment Network, the largest angel network in the world. And I was also, by default, I guess, become the resident dragon at the Institute of Directors, which I enjoy enormously. One of the kindest things I think I've ever had said to me in business was a lady who wrote to me after the last dragon session and said, Paul, you're a very kind dragon. Business can be hard, selfish, even cruel. But actually, I think one should be kind. There's plenty of room for all of us. Over the next few months, we'll be flying in helicopters and hovering together. We'll be piggybacking on other people's assets. We'll be growing companies with no external and insignificant internal debt or equity. We did this six times, Marco and I. We'll be diving for pearls and we'll be having a lot more adventures together. So I'm very much looking forward to that. In this podcast, I'm going to talk to you about the huge opportunities emerging from this dreadful epidemic. All our companies have been innovative, some inventing brand new products. We've invented new ideas and it's exciting and enjoyable to do so. And the conditions have never been more fertile than right now. The last massive recession, or actually was a depression, was after World War II, when our national debt was two and three quarter times the equivalent to today. It took a long time to climb out of that, but this time will be far faster. True, further spikes could slow it, but it will still be far faster. Why? Because the infrastructure of the country, which was devastated by the Second World War, has not been damaged. What is damaged, or you might say changed, because it could be for the better, is our way of life and our realisation that we might prefer a new lifestyle going forward. The big question is, after the epidemic is finally under control, with vaccines or cures, will we go back to being busy fools, or will we actually take this opportunity to realise the lessons learned? I'm going to give you three examples. After World War II, the challenge was to rebuild a seriously damaged world. But it was also to increase employment and rebuild the economy of the country, which are the same problems that we've got today. I'm going to give you three examples from the Second World War to set you thinking. It so happens they're all in transport, in the transport sector. But the lessons learned apply in every sector, and certainly today. The first is about a young man who was born in Izmir, which was then in Greece, now in Turkey. It moved to Turkey when there was a war between Greece and Turkey. And 
His father was in tobacco. The war completely wiped out the tobacco. The young man had had an education, but was very bright, despite the fact that it was cut short. And he left with a little saved money, very little actually, to Argentina, where he had friends. He started a similar tobacco shipping business to his father in Argentina. And then he moved into bulk carrying vessels, shipping vessels, which he leased. And he started to realise that bulk carriage was always very important. But that during the move to the war and the war itself, huge numbers of bulk oil tankers were required to fuel the navies of the many countries worldwide. Every shipbuilder in the world was at full capacity. Noticing this, when the war ended 75 years ago, he went to the Saudi rulers. He asked them, would you mind telling me what you pay for shipping your oil around the world? And they told him. And he said, if I could knock 30% off that cost, would you give me the contract? They thought he was a man of vision, a young man of vision. And they had nothing to lose. They made it very conditional, but they gave him a contract in his pocket, which if he could fulfill at 30% less cost than they were shipping at that time, they would honour. With that contract, he went to the American government. He said to them, you've got a huge fleet of redundant tankers at anchorage outside major ports worldwide. They're in harbours, bays, in estuaries, everywhere. And they're awaiting scrapping. It's going to take years. And meantime, you've got to crew them, you've got to maintain them, you've got to fuel them. I'll pay you now scrap value for those vessels if you'll sell them to me. And the Americans accepted. He bought the fleet on borrowed money on the basis of the contract he had from the Saudis and he registered them in Panama, which in those days was novel and gave him huge tax benefits. He became the largest shipping fleet owner in the world, the wealthiest person in the world, and he married the most eligible lady in the world, Jacqueline Kennedy, wife of John Kennedy, who had been assassinated, President of the United States. I'm just going to digress because I read over the weekend a recent Money Week magazine, and in it, it said that Melania Trump was asked, would you have married Donald Trump if he hadn't been wealthy? And she answered, would he have married me if I hadn't been beautiful? I thought it was a great response from a usually rather quiet lady. A fantastic response. And this was probably true then as well. But Jacqueline became Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis. He was, of course, Aristotle Onassis. His wealth isn't the point. It's not the money one makes which is important. It's what you do with it. The money is not the most valuable commodity anyway. What is the most valuable commodity? Hands up. Time is your most valuable commodity and what you do with that time. What he did achieve was that he reduced the cost of oil transportation worldwide. He benefited cost of living. He employed a vast multitude of crew from all over the world. And he streamlined and laid the foundation of a whole new modern shipping industry. A great achievement out of a great opportunistic deal. The second example is a man called Donald Gosling. He was a junior officer in the Navy in World War II, the British Navy. He was demobbed and returned to London, where he was absolutely shattered by the devastation wreaked by German bombers. We did the same, of course, to them in Cologne and Dresden and elsewhere, and they also bombed many other British cities. Houses were obliterated, blocks of flats, stations, churches, all flattened, 
and huge bomb craters, which were called bomb sites, appeared everywhere. I played in one as a little boy in St John's Wood. It was great fun. A bit dangerous, but great fun. Danger is fun. I was actually born in the Blitz, and actually I was nearly born in a taxi because my mother couldn't find anywhere to take her. None of the hospitals would take her in. They were all full. I don't remember the fare, so I guess my head stayed in until I got there. Anyway, Donald Gosling was fond of cars and he'd noted the huge increase from a million cars at the end of World War I to two million in World War II and he foresaw further increases after the war. There are actually over 40 million cars in the UK today. British roads had been built for horse-drawn vehicles and were totally unsuitable for mixed use. He had an idea. Most of the bomb sites in London were in the Westminster City Council area and he went to see them. And there he met a young surveyor called Ronald Hobson. You have to have luck in business, and that was his biggest piece of luck. Because Ronald Hobson had been thinking the same, and he had actually spotted a bomb crater in Holborn, in central London, which was for sale for £200. Together they scrabbled the money from friends, family, their demob money, their own savings. £200 in those days was about £12,000 today. They managed to get it together and they bought the crater. That crater became the first city car park. And when they added others, it was called Central Car Parks. And with the addition of additional bomb sites in London and elsewhere in the United Kingdom, they built a chain of car parks which morphed into national car parks. It was a great success in business and they became very popular. They became the largest chain in Europe and for a while the world. Donald Gosling became a very popular man. He was knighted by Her Majesty the Queen. Donald Gosling was made a Vice Admiral in the Royal Navy. Ronald Hobson was also knighted and was instrumental in bringing peace to Kosovo. So he carried on in, in, a, in an important role. He was a celebrity. He was very fond of yachting, very successful and fulfilling life. Again, what's important is that he employed, I believe, 19,000 people, many returning from military duty as managers, caretaker, security officers, clerks, etc. He invented car storage, a facility which is essential in this modern era. And the final example is about Citroen cars. They had a factory on the River Seine in France. And they were producing TUB vans and Citroen de Chevaux, 2C cars. Prior to World War II, that's what they'd been doing. But during the war, obviously France was overrun and occupied by the Germans. And they had need of factories to produce arms and tanks and military vehicles. And they converted Citroen to doing just that. They moved in with their own plans, with their own drawings, with their own procedures. And they retrained all the staff and all the workers in the factory except one little office. I don't know how many people there were, I guess about 20. I don't know whether they were men or women or both. But that office turned up for work and were paid and had nothing to do. They turned up the second week and again they had absolutely nothing to do. Nobody asked them any questions. It was a planning, drawing and new product development office and they were left alone. And after a couple of weeks of doing nothing, they got bored and they thought, well, we might as well use this time to good avail. And they set about inventing and developing products which they thought would enhance new vehicles of the future. 
features which would be important and which would be revolutionary. And they had the time, the most valuable commodity. Citroen was associated with Maserati of Italy, and in the 1970s, nearly 30 years later, they produced a car called the Citroen SM, the most futuristic revolutionary car of its time, possibly actually ever. And in the 1970s, I was very, very lucky to acquire a second-hand Citroen SM. It was amazing. It had mind-blowing features. For example, a hydraulic clutch, pneumatic suspension, self-leveling, swivelling headlights, so you could actually see round corners, front-wheel drive, torque power steering. If you turned the steering wheel, it righted itself to centre with great force. You had to hold on to the wheel. If you let it go in the middle of turning a bend, you'd go straight off the bend. I don't know if racing cars have that today, but certainly it was a feature that they introduced, and it was very difficult to control until you understood it. It had wipers, which came on when it rains. They're used today regularly, of course, but in those days it was absolutely unthought of. It was a miracle to have that. Disc brakes, resin wheels, half the weight of normal wheels. The construction contained fiberglass. I could go on, but remember that that was 75 years ago, that that was actually designed by that planning office in Citroen, and 50 years ago since the car was launched. It was sensational. And if, if you have a look at the web and look at the Citroen SM and look at the styling, you'd agree with me that if that car was invented and marketed today, it would be a sensational modern sports car. And just to finish with the analogy of the Second World War, I just want to tell you a quick list of things which were invented during that time. You may not realise it. They were either invented during the war or immediately after as a direct result. Computers, satellites, ATM machines, penicillin, jet engines, radar, photocopiers, and smaller items like ballpoint pens. Before that, we all had nibs and ink. That's what I used to write with at school. And superglue. A lot of it came out of military development and need. The point of all this is that the same, in fact, greater opportunity abounds right now. Just think about it. What's going to happen to the office buildings which are partially or fully vacated? Office building has been hugely popular with developers over the last few years. They're going up everywhere. Cities all over the world. What is going to happen to them? Are they going to come down and be converted back into Greensfield sites? A complete waste of asset. Are they going to return to residential? Are people actually going to want to live in cities now? Or are they going to favour the green life, which they've enjoyed, many of them, during lockdown? Are they going to be turned into recreational leisure sites? Are people going to be wanting to go to the cities for their leisure? Or is there a big opportunity for local leisure facilities to get people out of their home working and together with other people? Human beings are social animals. Might they be converted, some of them, to vertical automated farms? It's quite possible and it works very well for certain green products. What's going to happen to social gathering places like cinemas, theatres? What will happen to the cities themselves once they're partially vacated and people enjoy living in the country? What new power sources are we going to require to give us the green environment which we so crave and need? How are we going to replace plastics which do such huge damage? How are we going to stop the bugs winning? Because sure enough there'll be more and they'll be different 
They're very clever. What new means of transport, whether it be air, sea or land, are going to make us feel comfortable and safe? Or, if we're going to use the current ones, what new products can be developed to make us feel comfortable and safe as we travel? How will contact sport change? What's going to happen to crowd gatherings? There's an enormous feel about being in a crowd. It's a social need. Why do we still go to cinema altogether and not always watch it on television? Because there's something about being in a social gathering with other people. How are we going to replace that? What's going to happen to retail of the future? The shoppers' retail therapy, where's that going to come from? Incidentally, queues are a real opportunity. People gathered outside shops, standing, doing nothing but looking at their mobile phones. Perhaps the mobile phone is the answer to keep them occupied, but perhaps there's something else one can do to keep them occupied, interested, competitions, amusement, whatever. There are things changing, and that gives opportunity. What's going to happen to holidays, to restaurants? I could go on, of course, and you're all thinking of this in your own areas, but I can assure you in your own areas, the opportunities abound. If the vaccine is found and cures are successful, will we all go back to living as we did until the next killer surfaces? Like communities living on the edge of live volcanoes? A lot do. Are we going to do that? These are the questions for you to answer. I've answered mine and I've enjoyed the ride. My wife said I'm such an enthusiast that when I die, were I to have a tombstone, which I certainly won't, she'd inscribe it, he died enthusiastically. I can assure you I won't, mainly because I'll miss the exciting times ahead, the massive breakthroughs which we can expect. I'm certainly going to stick around long enough to witness the mini revolutions which the new generation creates out of COVID-19. I hope I've given you some food for thought and I hope you'll join me again. But whether you do or not, I wish each and every one of you huge success in helping to rebuild this great country of ours. Goodbye.